0: Hi, I'm John Harwood, your host for Bedeviled, a podcast about American democracy from the Paula Center for Politics at Duke University. We bring you conversations with politicians, journalists, and academics about preserving the delicate balance of our fractious system of self-government. If you went searching for a Republican rebel just a few years ago, Wyoming's sole representative in the House would have been one of the last places you'd look. Liz Cheney's not merely a conservative. She was born and raised in the GOP. Her father, Dick Cheney, served as White House Chief of Staff to President Gerald Ford before serving himself in the House, as Defense Secretary, and then Vice President in the administration of George W. Bush. Liz Cheney voted for Donald Trump's election and backed his legislative agenda more than 90% of the time. But when President Trump tried to overturn his 2020 re-election defeat to Joe Biden, Cheney found a line she wouldn't cross for her party. She joined Democrats in assailing Trump's attempt to subvert the Constitution on January 6th, voting to impeach him and leading the House committee that investigated the violent insurrection. It cost Cheney her House seat in a losing 2022 primary campaign against a Trump-backed challenger. She has not, however, lost her voice in the nation's political conversation. Cheney's written the new best-selling book, Oath and Honor, which warns American voters that preserving our democracy requires preventing Trump from ever returning to the Oval Office. And now Liz Cheney is my guest for this new episode of Bedevilled. Welcome to Bedevilled. Thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate the time. The first thing I wanted to ask
0: you about was, you know, a lot of people have made the observation that um, in stepping up the the way that you did, that you um, gave up your political career, sacrificed your political career. It strikes me that that's not true, that your political career has now taken a different form, um, perhaps more consequential than it was previously. Tell me how it feels to you.
1: Well, you know, I it, it's interesting. I get that question, um, as, as you point out, quite a bit. And I, I, I never really thought about it or really think about it that way. Um, uh, you know, from my perspective, uh, there was something that needed to be done and continues to need to be done in terms of making sure that we don't elect somebody president who, um, you know, has already shown us that he's he's willing to attempt to, to seize power, to overturn an election. Um, and, uh, you know, beginning... Really, back after the election, and then of course with impeachment moving forward, um, you know, I, I was acting in ways that I uh, that I knew to be right, and and so I suppose I didn't, I never really thought about that in terms of, you know, sort of sitting down and thinking, uh, are you sacrificing your career or something? But I did think about it in terms of my my house seat, and you know, realized very. Early on, um, that uh, you know, the the value of that house seat was certainly um, not worth uh, um, you know the things that would have to have been done to to maintain it. No, no position in government, um, I think you know, is something people should try to be preserving by by lying, uh, by taking steps that I believe are inconsistent with the Constitution.
0: Let me ask you to step back and take a a, a broader or a longer uh, term look at where we find ourselves. Uh, you had a unique vantage point as a kid. Um, when you were in grade school, your dad was chief of staff in the White House to Gerald Ford, who is about as close to a, an opposite in temperament and character to Donald Trump as I can imagine. How did we get from that Republican party that you were uh, acculturated into from a very young age to the situation we find ourselves um, in that you wrote about in your book, which I think can only be described as the moral and intellectual collapse of the Republican Party as it's currently constituted.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I think that that there are uh, a whole range of sort of um Events, things that happened, kind of a, a perfect storm of um, uh, of events, really. And I think that um, if you look at the way that Donald Trump was able to and continues to be able to get people to believe his lies, um, I think that's a it's a very important thing that I felt sometimes people inside the beltway, Uh, have taken for granted or have have underestimated um, how powerful that is. And, you know, I I think that sometimes you have had, you still still do, although to a lesser extent, Republican officials, both elected and appointed, who said, well, just ignore Trump and he'll go away. And, you know, I, I write in the book about hearing that and thinking to myself, well, those people have never, you know, walked down the street in Cody, Wyoming or Cheyenne, Wyoming. They've never talked to people across the country outside of the Beltway who really have felt like they didn't have a voice and who um, have been betrayed by Donald Trump. But but he, he reached those people. He managed to convince them that somehow he was going to be their voice. Um, and uh, I think that sort of the combination of his ability to convey the big lie, to convince people to take action on his behalf um, by lying to them, and then when you when you add to that the elected officials who weren't duped by him, you know there's very few elected Republicans who really believe what he said, what he's saying, but there are many who are going along anyway. And you know those are sort of the collaborators, I believe, and the enablers—the people who know what he's doing is dangerous and wrong, but but they've been willing to let him do it and to help him do it. And I think those two things have certainly had an impact. You know, I also think the fact that you've seen um, policies on the left that, in so many ways, you know, um, seem more radical than they've been in the past, and um, you know, convince people who might otherwise reject Donald Trump to think to themselves, "Well, you know what? Um, he's the lesser of two evils." Which, of course, I, I think is is a very misguided. But I, I do think you've had sort of a whole combination of those things add up to uh, to his his ongoing uh, threat.
0: Do you link it as some people do? It makes sense to me. Uh, that a lot of what created the conditions for Trump to uh, uh, sort of gain uh, allegiance from these people is that the country's been undergoing not just economic but demographic changes that has. Uh, it, we're on the way to becoming a majority minority country um, during the 1960s when Donald Trump was coming of age. Eighty percent of Americans were uh, identified as white Christians. Now it's less than fifty percent. Do you see that as a sort of a core driver of what's going on?
1: I think that it, it uh, the whole the whole policies, all the policies around immigration, um, certainly play a role in this. But I think that that they play a role that's a little bit more complex. I think, for example, if you you know if you if you look at sort of George W Bush's approach for example to to immigration and if you look at kind of the idea of um, it, that the previous presidents have had about sort of compassion and and appreciation recognizing that this is a country that is made of immigrants a country that um, you know has had its largest successes because people have wanted to come live here that that is sort of an approach um, that I, I think has has, Characterized Republican and Democratic administrations, but but what's happening today, which to me is completely inexplicable, um, is these policies the Biden administration has at the border, which, you know, we've got ten thousand people, uh, you know, lined up, thousands of people lined up to try to come across, and no controls, no understanding of who's coming in um you know really an open border in a way that's not sustainable and that's causing even democratic mayors and governors to plead with the Biden administration to get control of the border and so i think when when you have you know people looking at a border security crisis um a situation that is unsafe both for for this country and for the people who are trying to come here um that that is completely as i said inexplicable um and then you have, you know Donald Trump uh, really playing into and preying on a kind of xenophobic racism. again, it it becomes a really a really dangerous mix. but i I point to immigration as a a place where you know the the Biden administration, if it doesn't take steps to gain control at the border, they are absolutely going to drive independent and reasonable Republican voters away and and drive people into the camp of saying, you know, we can't, we can't, we we, maybe even we have to vote for Trump, not me. They're not going to do that in terms of there's nothing that will convince me to vote for Trump. But but there are certainly many independents across the country who will. And so I, I think those kinds of things play into Trump's hands, certainly.
0: A few decades ago, you're mom and dad wrote a book called Kings of the Hill, and it was about uh, powerful uh, speakers, uh, several of them Republicans, not just Newt Gingrich, who was contemporary at the time, but people like Joe Cannon and Thomas Reed and Nicholas Longworth. Now we've ended up uh, within your party with people like Kevin McCarthy and Mike Johnson, whose defining characteristic strikes me as weakness. How'd that happen?
1: Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. Actually, I, I did not ever read the book Kings of the Hill until I got to Congress. And then when I opened it up to read it and realized it was dedicated to my sister and me, I felt guilty that I had not read it for decades. Um, but it's a, it's a great book and I, I highly recommend it. And I um, look, I, I think that uh, so much of, of what we've seen, both frankly with McCarthy and now with Johnson, um, is a lack of, of, uh, character, um, and, and a lack of seriousness. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this is due in part to, um, the outsized influence now, the, the sort of radical wing of the Republican Party has in the House Republican Conference. Uh, I, I think about, you know, how, um, in early 2019, just after I'd been elected to leadership, when Steve King made uh, comments that were supportive of white supremacy, white, white nationalism, and we immediately condemned it and we immediately stripped him of his committee assignments. And when you compare that to the way that Kevin McCarthy and, and now Mike Johnson deal with members who have you know said things that are, um, in some cases, even worse— uh, you know, they elevate them, they put them on key committees, uh, embrace them and and I, I think that's that's made both both uh, McCarthy and Johnson, I suppose, feel like they're hostage to that wing of the party. and i'm not I'm not sure that Johnson frankly minds that very much.
0: One of the things that as a reporter, I found myself wondering throughout the Trump administration and then in its aftermath uh, after the 2020 election. Is why more people within your party were not willing to do what you and uh, Adam Kinzinger were willing to do in terms of uh, standing up for uh, what you saw was right. Um, I wonder if you could uh, reflect on that for a minute. And then I wanted to ask you about one person in particular. You you, you mentioned in your book that Elise Stefanik, who you know, had been seen as a moderate. She worked in the uh, George W. Bush administration. You said you thought something snapped in her. What, what did you mean by that? And and uh, and did it snap in a whole lot of other Republicans too?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I I, um, I think some of this is is uh, it's been a real study in in human nature. But um, the 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 speed with which the Republican Conference. Um, basically most of the Republican conference decided that they were going to help efforts to whitewash January 6th and that they were going to fall in line behind Trump was really pretty breathtaking. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, I had read about happening in, in you know, other countries around the world. But, I, you know, I think a lot of people, millions of Americans probably thought this, this could not ever happen here, that people would never, um, you know, enable the, the kind of behavior that we've seen from Trump. Um, and there are some members who, you know, sort of take the position that they're going to support him, but, but they'll be quiet about it. And privately, they'll tell you, you know, well, yeah, we understand, but we're doing this because we have to, you know, maintain our own political survival. Um, but, you know, Elise is, uh, uh, it's, you know, those of us who have known her for a long time, um. A lot of us have spent, you know, a lot of time wondering what happened to her. And um I think that, you know, one of the stories I tell in the book was about a call I got from her um after I voted to impeach uh, Trump. And she was really angry, and she called me up and she said, "You know, the fact that you voted to impeach has put me in a very tough spot." And I asked her what she meant, And she said, "Well, I'm getting people writing letters to my hometown newspapers asking why I didn't, you know, take the principled stand that you took. And, you know, if you just think for a minute, and I thought like, well, you know, that sounds more like a you problem, Elise, than a me problem.
0: Exactly. <laughs>
1: um, but but it, it's a kind of, um, I, I think that's what I meant when I said something snapped. It was like she, she sort of lost all touch with right and wrong. Um, and
0: Is it a pure ambition thing?
1: I mean, I, I suppose that's a huge part of it. It's just it's it is surprising to see um, from somebody who seemed to have been principled at one point in her career. Surprising to see um, sort of that level of of craven cravenness.
0: Now, now, let me ask you about one other person who I don't think has snapped, and I do think has is guided by some principles. Who does seem to share many of the sentiments that you share, but at critical moments, including the second impeachment when it went to the Senate, pulled back. I'm talking about Mitch McConnell. And you mentioned that you were, you've been surprised at a couple of different points by how you thought he was going to do something like, you know, vote to convict uh, or or take other steps. And then he pulled back. How do you explain that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I really... I, I talk about my relationship with Mitch in the book, and and he's somebody I've known for decades. Someone I have a lot of respect for. I think he's he's been a master tactician in Washington for many years, um, and you know has had the kind of political judgment um, and maneuverability that you have to have to be Senate leader, Republican leader, anyway, for as long as as he has been. Um, And I was speaking with him throughout this whole period, and I really believed that um, not only did he support the House impeaching, but that he was likely to vote to convict. And um, so it was a real disappointment to realize that that wasn't the case in terms of the conviction. Um, And... I, I think there were a couple of times where his actions could have made a real difference. You know, once the house had impeached um, within hours, Mitch announced that there would not be a trial in the Senate until after Trump had left office. Um, and, and I think that was a huge mistake um, in part. Was he just
0: fooling himself with the hope that Trump would disappear and therefore he wouldn't have to do
1: something difficult? I think that's, that certainly was a big part of it. I mean, you know, um, he told me a number of times that he was confident that Trump was going to fade away. That if you know we just stopped talking about Trump, that that he would in fact go away. That his political career was over. Uh, it was just a real misjudgment. And I do think I think Mitch believed that once the impeachment happened, he could sort of keep his hands clean, not have to vote to convict. But but if you listen to the speech he gave on the floor of the Senate. After he voted not to convict, you would think he was, you know, (laughs) exactly voting to convict. So, no, it was, it was, and then, uh, of course, when we were putting in place the votes for the bipartisan commission before the House Select Committee had to be formed, you know, when I learned that Mitch had was telling senators that he considered it a personal favor for them to vote against the bipartisan commission, I, you know, just, Sort of had to shake my head. I could not imagine how how we'd gotten to that point.
0: Let me situate us in the current moment for a for a second, and that is um, we've got a Congress, specifically House Republicans, who are resisting aid to Ukraine, and by resisting aid to Ukraine, they're helping Vladimir Putin. There was a lot of um, what I considered straw man discussion a few years ago about whether. Trump, uh, after the Mueller investigation, had been guilty of collusion. That's not really a stated crime in the in the statute books. But we do know unequivocally that the Russians helped Trump and Trump has taken positions that have helped uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russians. And now a House Republican caucus, at his behest, are resisting um extending aid further aid to ukraine is this a situation where vladimir putin set out to achieve a result within us politics and he succeeded how do you put those all those things together
1: well i don't think there's any question that what trump is doing right now is helping putin and what the republicans um who Oppose aid to Ukraine are doing is helping Putin. Um, And I think that when you combine that with listening to Trump do what he did again last weekend, where he, you know, lavishes Putin with praise, and, you know, along with Xi and uh, Orban and and Kim Jong-un, uh, you know, it is—it's nothing that we've ever seen before from an American president. He—he he really seems to be enamored with tyrants. He's enamored with strongmen, um, and you know that's not psychoanalysis. Uh, that's just listening to what he says. Um, exactly. You know, it's uh, so I, I took note in that speech over the weekend that the only people that he described as evil were his fellow citizens who happen to be his political opponents. Um, but for the tyrants around the world, you know, the the thugs, the murderers, those, those people um, he describes as brilliant and geniuses and um, he, he really is enamored with them. So uh, you know there's no question in my mind that that Trump is helping Putin um, and and he's doing so at the at the expense of the United States and and the cause of freedom around the world.
0: We're coming up on the Iowa caucuses. Donald Trump has maintained a big lead over the entire field. What do you expect to happen in the twenty twenty four campaign with Trump legally, in terms of the outcome of Jack Smith and various other investigations, and politically?
1: Well, on the on the sort of progress of um, the, uh, the the charges that he's facing, you know. N- I don't think enough people are focused on the fact that Trump's efforts to delay uh, the January sixth case, for example, are really all about suppressing evidence, all about making sure the American people don't see the evidence. If you think about if you think about the January sixth hearings and you think about the people and the testimony that we saw in the hearings and and those same people who now Jack Smith has gotten likely even, more granular testimony from. Um, you know, the, that, that trial is going to involve um, Donald Trump's own you know White House counsel and his own attorney general and the leaders of his campaign, probably his own vice president, you know, uh, testifying against him, talking about exactly what he did to try to overturn the election and seize power. And every time Donald Trump tries to delay that trial, um, it's because he doesn't want the American people to see all of that evidence before they go to the polls. Uh, and so, and I think that's really an important piece of this that deserves more attention.
0: Do you expect that he will have one or more felony convictions in 2024? And do you expect that to have a major impact on him, either in the race for the Republican nomination or in the general election?
1: You know, I think, um, it's entirely possible. Um, obviously, you know, our judicial process has to play out, but certainly, you know, the select committee made criminal referrals. Um, and I expect that just based on what I've seen publicly and, and the filings that I've been reading, that there's even more evidence the special counsel has collected. Um, and so I, I think it's more likely than not that in fact, you know, he is convicted, that he's a convicted felon. Um, certainly before the convention. And um, and I, I'm not one of those who thinks you can just assume that won't matter. I, I really, I, I still have enough um, hope in the American people broadly that someone who's, you know, potentially at this point been, been convicted of, um, you know, attempting to subvert our democracy, that that will have an impact. It'll give people pause about whether or not they want to install that person
0: Uh, you know, give him that power again. One of the things that we've seen with many people who, within your party, who have stood up and um, condemned Trump at various points, some of them, when you say, well, okay, does that mean you're going to vote for Joe Biden uh, next year if those are the two nominees? And they will say, oh, no, no, well, I'm going to vote for the Republican nominee. Is it safe to assume that if those are the two nominees that you, as you did in the Arizona governor's race last year are going to say, um, this is a case where I'm supporting the democratic nominee.
1: I'll never vote for Donald Trump. And, um, I don't know what the field's going to look like next year. So, uh, I want to wait, wait and see. Um, but, but I, I certainly will never vote for Donald Trump. Um, one, one other point just as, as I'm thinking about sort of the last, the last question you asked John, um, there are people now who are saying that it's somehow political, the effort to make sure that the, the um, cases move quickly is somehow political. And, and imagine a situation in which our, our judicial system um, functions in a way that someone can do what Trump did in 2020— basically you know try to seize power and that we can't manage to hold him accountable until after he runs for office and is potentially elected again i mean that if that doesn't tell you that you know a system is broken i'm not sure what does so <laughs> i think you know the the moving with haste is is very important here
0: one of the things people have been uh looking at is the polling around potential third party candidates whether it's Cornel West or Robert F. Kennedy Jr. or a no labels Joe Manchin type person, you've been um, discussed as somebody who potentially could run a a third party campaign. Is it safe to assume that if you look at the situation in the race and decide that a third party campaign would help by you, would help Donald Trump, that you won't do it?
1: That's correct. Yeah. Um And I I also would say that, you know, sometimes people talk about this and they say, well, you know, this is going to be Trump versus Biden, um, you know, uh, unless a third-party candidate gets in. And and I think it's important to remember, as you just pointed out, we already have other candidates in the race. So this isn't going to be just, um, you know, Republican versus Democrat. Um, I think that it's... uh, not entirely clear that Biden is going to be the Democratic nominee. And it's certainly not entirely clear that Trump's going to be the Republican nominee. Um, But if if those two people are at the top of the ticket, then you certainly are going to have a fractured electorate. There'll be other parties in this race.
0: Are you expecting that some of the large figures within your party who have not spoken up will do so next year if we get a Trump-Biden race? I'm thinking... Of course, your father has stepped up um, uh, quite publicly. I'm thinking of people like George W. Bush. Do you expect people like him to stand up and say the country can't afford four more years of Donald Trump?
1: I I, I certainly hope so. And um, you know, I, I have huge respect, obviously, for President Bush, and and I understand that there has always been um, an uh, sort of unwritten. Um, way of operating among former presidents, where they don't want to step out publicly and criticize their successor. They feel like they're off the stage, um, you know. But I also think very clearly, we're going to be in a situation if Trump's the Republican nominee, where you know all all Republicans, um, especially those who have held most most senior positions in the past, have a have a duty. Um, to make sure the American people know the truth about the threat he poses.
0: I interviewed uh, Cassidy Hutchinson, who I know you have become uh, close to through the January 6th process and have a high regard for uh, last week. And Cassidy said, you know, we should recognize that if Donald Trump were to fall off the face of the earth tomorrow, we would still have a big problem within the Republican Party and within our politics. You agree with that and 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 once once Trump does leave the scene, what do you expect to happen within your party?
1: i I do agree with that. I think that um you know we have a party now that has accepted such uh, indefensible behavior. So many people in the party have accepted such indefensible behavior that um, you know, even if Trump weren't a factor. Uh, himself, uh, you, you know, I, I think you've still got a party that's got to figure out how to how to dig itself out of this hole, and I don't know if it can or if it's going to require a new party arising. But but when you think about, um, you know, how far the party has fallen from one that was embracing the ideals of Ronald Reagan, for example, um, there's a there's a huge amount of work to do now. I, I don't know that it will take that long. I mean I think it's a you know a post 2024 kind of an effort that will have to be made once we make sure we defeat Trump this time around. But um, you know think about the party abandoned its principles pretty quickly and you know perhaps the people within the party, people who used to be in the party, you know who might be convinced to come back, um, can be part of a project to rebuild it. Um, hopefully, as quickly as uh, you know, as it fell apart.
0: Let me close with this question. I a few weeks ago, I interviewed President Biden on the same topic on the threat to democracy, the vibrancy of democracy, the survivability of democracy, and the core message he had was, "I'm an optimist about this." Are you?
1: I'm an optimist about um, the people of this country. Uh, I think that. It's really important to remember that it's the people of the country that defend the institutions, and I am very worried about people who minimize the threat of Trump. And and I you know I put some of the conservative media uh, like the Wall Street Journal in that category right now, where they say, well, you know, our institutions will hold the separation of power. Um, you know, we'll stop him. That's not true. You know, if you imagine what. Donald Trump could do with some unethical lawyers um, in key places like, you know, OLC, the Attorney General's Office at the Justice Department, Office of Legal Counsel, um, White House Counsel. uh, When, you know, courts issue rulings with which he disagrees, he just will simply refuse to enforce them. Um, And he certainly already tried to prevent the peaceful transition of power once. So it's... um, Anybody who's worked in an administration, I think, would tell you a president bent on uh, staying in power and um, you know blowing through the roadblocks of our democracy can do it. Um, you know, particularly if he surrounds himself with the kind of uh, unethical uh, lawyers uh, and others that we know Donald Trump would would be accompanied by this time around. So I'm there. I think um, it's it's really important to be realistic about the threat. um, And it's going to take concerted action to make sure that that we do work together to uphold our institutions.
0: Well, I guess if there's anything that can give us some assurance is that we have seen that there are some people who are willing to stand up and be effective in standing up. And one of them is you. And so I would say uh, uh, on behalf of our democracy, uh, the country is grateful for that.
1: Well, thank you, thank you very much for saying that, and thank you for all the work and the attention that you've given to all of these issues. They matter matter hugely, and I appreciate having the chance to speak to you about them.
0: Thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening to Be Deviled. This podcast is possible because of the Paulus Center for Politics at Duke University. It's produced by Paulus Director, Professor DeAndre Rose, and Maria Luisa fresson Nori music from Blue Dot Sessions. You can listen to Bedeviled at polis.duke.edu or on all podcast platforms.